open up to John chapter 18. Uh, anybody ever gone whitewater, whitewater rafting? Say that five times fast. Yeah, I, you know, a little bit. I think I went once in what could be considered literal whitewater rafting, and that was really tame. Um, but when you come upon a river, whether it's a, a slow-moving river or what you would typically think of as, as white water, it, it's beautiful from the shore. <laughs> it, it just looks lovely. Uh, it's, it's majestic. And if you see the kind of river that they would go whitewater rafting in, it, it's impressive. It's powerful. There's just churning water. But even looking at it, you don't really get the whole picture. There's so much going on under the surface that I think is really what makes whitewater rafting so challenging and so dangerous, and consequently, I think, to some people, fun. Uh, not only, and, and I think this one's obvious, obviously the, the boat can be hurled against a rock and shattered. That, that's bad, okay? That would be a bad outcome of that endeavor. But there's more than that because the current can take the boats in ways that if you aren't trained or don't know about it, that that could be very surprising. The the current, as it hits a rock, can take you under and trap you there. It can swirl you around behind the rock and take you under and trap you there. And it's very surprising the way the current of the water not only works, but the power of that current to suck a, a boat, a raft, or a person right underwater and just tumble that person over and over again. It's the rocks, ultimately, that make the white water, as the water runs over them and around them. It makes the river perilous. But someone who is familiar, and this is not me, and the guide said, go on this side, I went on that side. But the guide's reading the water. And the guide knows when the current twists this way, this is where the boat needs to be to either hit that wave just right or avoid it entirely. The guide knows. And so today we're going to be talking about going through perilous waters. Maybe you're in a position in your life right now that you would say, I'm, I'm in perilous waters. Maybe you've come out of some. Maybe, you, who knows, we might be heading toward some. How do we navigate perilous waters? And so we're going to be looking at this scene from the arrest and trial of Jesus Christ. And we're presented with these two figures. And and John intentionally in this gospel holds up these two people side by side to compare and contrast them. We'll see Peter and what he goes through. And then we'll go back to Jesus Christ and then we'll go back to Peter. And I'm going to deal with them separately, but I want to point out the way the text flows because John is doing this to say, look at how Jesus handled this compared to how Peter handled this. So let's look at the rocks that are ahead. Are there rocks ahead? Thank you. Thank you. Some people that watch the same movies I do. Yes, Princess Bride. If there are rocks ahead, we'll all be dead. Sorry, I had to put it in there. I was going through my mind as I was prepping for the sermon. It's not important. Let's move on. Let's look at verses 12 through 14 and just sort of set the stage, kind of describe the rocks that are in this perilous situation. So Jesus has just been arrested. We talked about that two weeks ago now. Verse 12, then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him 
and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest, that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Now, this is one of those passages we could just skim over really quick, but there's a lot of I think very important background information to set the stage, to understand the rocks that Peter and Jesus are navigating in this situation. The first rock that I want us to look at is we have to understand the mindset of Peter. Peter has been a a devout follower of Jesus Christ. He's been there from the basically the very beginning of his ministry. He's been the one to to jump off the boat and walk on the water. He's been the one to stick up for Jesus. When Jesus was being arrested, he's the one that drew his sword. And then all of a sudden, this rabbi, this guy, he he thought was starting this massive movement that was going to take over the world, he gives himself up. And so Peter's dealing with disappointment, doubt, But also fear. Think about it. Here Jesus is arrested. Peter has just drawn his sword, struck off or cut off somebody's ear. And it's only because Jesus stopped the guards from arresting his disciples that they weren't arrested. But Peter knows. As you're ruled by the Jewish officials and the Roman army and the Roman emperor, he deserved to be on trial. He could have been arrested. He should have been arrested at any moment. So that's going on in his head. So there's Peter's situation. But you think of the doubt of all the disciples, all the followers of Jesus at this moment, as word would trickle out, what is going on with Jesus? Another rock that they're facing is a a very confusing religious leadership situation and even a confusing political situation. And here's where I want to bring in some background information to help you understand what's going on. They take Jesus to this guy named Annas, who is the father-in-law of the high priest Caiaphas. Why? Why do they take Jesus to the father-in-law of the high priest? Well, here's where we get into the messiness of Jewish and Roman politics during this time. Annas was the high priest. He had been appointed as the high priest around 6 AD, about 25 years prior to this. According to Jewish law, the person appointed as the Jewish high priest is the high priest for life. For life. However, as you may understand, the Jewish people lived under Roman law. They lived under Roman rule. And around 15 AD, a Roman official decides to remove Annas as the high priest. Doesn't want it anymore. Doesn't want him. And so he appoints his son, Eleazar, to be the high priest. Eleazar serves for about two years or so. And then the Romans said, we've had enough of him. We're going to appoint the son-in-law, Caiaphas, to be the high priest. So you've got a situation where the Jewish people look to Annas as their high priest. But legally, they have to look to Caiaphas as their high priest. Now this makes a lot of sense of the text then. Why is it they take him to Annas to put him on trial first, and when it's time to take him to Pilate, it's Caiaphas who takes him? It's because to the Jewish people, they needed to bring him to their high priest. But when it was time to take him to the Romans, Annas couldn't do it. It had to be Caiaphas. So we've got this confusing, crazy situation of the clashing of these two cultures. 
The third rock that's in this river that they're trying to navigate is this injustice, the profound injustice of the entirety of this event. Everything about this stinks. Witnesses were central to a Jewish trial. The charge was brought by a witness. The the judge or, or the group of judges, in fact, it always had to be a group of judges, they were required to go out and seek additional witnesses, both to speak for the person that's accused and against the person that was accused. In the Jewish court, it wasn't often ultimately the judge's decision on the guilt or innocence. It was the witnesses that discussed and tried to come to some sort of an agreement. What really happened? Without witnesses, there was no trial. There had to be witnesses. There also had to be time to check their stories, especially when the result of of the accusation would result in the accused being put to death. There had to be a two-day trial, so they'd have one moment to listen to the witnesses and another moment to try to find other witnesses to come and speak again. There had to be two days for the trial. Because of this, there were very important rules. Number one, you could not, under Jewish law, have a trial at night, period, for any reason. You had to wait. You could not arrest a person at night. You had to wait. Because you had to make sure that you had the proper witnesses gathered, and that was not to be done at night. This trial was illegal because it took place at night. A capital trial, again, which could result in in the, the... Killing, the removing of the life of the accused, had to take at least two days, day before Sabbath. You could not start a capital trial the day before a holy day because the court couldn't meet on the holy day. So they would have had to wait. Now, this is taking place late in the night on Thursday. But to the Jewish mindset, Friday began when the sun set on Thursday. So this was the day before a holy day. They couldn't have this trial. It was Illegal. The trial could have it. There was no way under Jewish law to have a preliminary trial. It was to be a public event in the Sanhedrin with everybody gathered and an opportunity for anybody to step forward and bear witness. This trial was illegal. It was private. All the indications are that this is taking place at, at Annas' private home. There were no real witnesses that were brought. Matthew records that they tried really hard to find false witnesses to even pay people to come and lie about the situation. So we see this as a rocky situation because it is completely unjust. It is wrong. It is illegal. There's a fourth rock, which really could go with injustice, but I I think it's important to deal with it separately because I think it's something we can really identify with. The people that were putting Jesus on trial had already made up their minds. This wasn't a trial. A trial is to discern guilt or innocence. This was a spectacle to carry out a plan that they had predetermined already. Turn with me to John chapter 11. In fact, as you're turning there, I'll just remind you of John 18, 14. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. So if we go to John 11, we'll see when this took place, starting in verse 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. 
But some of them went to the Pharisees, told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up, You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and to make and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. They had a goal. The goal was not a fair and proper trial. The goal was to kill Jesus. There is no justice in this situation. So we have this current that is raging in a river of this moment. We have these rocks in the current that are churning it up, creating a dangerous situation. And I want to look at how these two individuals, Peter and then Jesus, navigate these perilous waters. Because there's a lot here for us to learn, first and foremost, about Jesus. But also about how we should face situations. So let's look first at Peter. And I've called this poor navigation. Because Peter does not do so well here. Look at verses 15 through 18. Says John 18, 15 through 18, Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. We need to understand Peter's mindset here. On the one hand, he's been a follower of Jesus Christ from the very beginning. This is not a man that has lacked faith. This is not a man who lacked trust. This is a man who was wholeheartedly devoted to his rabbi, his teacher, and to his savior. Completely, no matter what, willing to do whatever it took. But things aren't going as planned. And it's easy outside of a situation, I think we all face this, it's easy to say, I got this, I know what I'm going to do, I can take on anything, I can face any situation, I know I will be strong. Then we hit the white water. And the water's churning. On top of that, he tried to kill a temple servant. Talked about that a couple weeks ago. And as I said earlier, he was only let go because Jesus made sure his disciples were safe. But he's now following the crowd that consisted of Jewish officials and Roman soldiers and now servants and all these people in the middle of the night. They all understand something's going on that shouldn't be going on. What in the world is happening? And in the midst of it is Peter. And he knows at any moment if somebody points him out, 
Jesus is way over there on trial and maybe can't help him anymore. If somebody says, hey, you're the guy that cut off the ear, he could be arrested and put on trial as well. And so we come to Peter's first denial in verses 15 through 18. As he is allowed finally into the courtyard where the trial is taking place, John points out that he he moves over to a place where the servants had set up a fire. This was highly unusual. The servants at this time would not be around because it's the middle of the night. But if there was something spectacular going on, as you can imagine, word would sort of spread in a household and the servants would come out. They couldn't get right up there in the crowd. They would stay to the back so they didn't get in trouble. But it's the middle of the night. It's cold. They would start a fire. Where does Peter go? He doesn't go up into the crowd right there where Jesus is. He doesn't try to be by his rabbi. He shrinks back and he stays with the servants. Close enough to keep an eye on things, but far enough away to try to protect his own safety. And here this servant girl says, you aren't one of this man's disciples too. Here's Peter standing next to who I assume is John. He's not named in the passage, but that's pretty typical throughout this book. He had entered with John. Evidently, John was willing to be known as a follower of Jesus. There was no question along the way whether John was a follower of Jesus. In fact, I think that's why the the servant girl says, you aren't one of his disciples too. I already know he's a disciple, but what about you? I mean, Peter's not even alone. He's with a friend at this point. They could have grabbed on, yeah, we're together, we're following Jesus. But instead, Peter not only distances himself from, Pete, or from Jesus, but also from John. And then he goes and he huddles around a fire in fear. This is the same guy that was willing to cut off somebody's ear, and I assume try to kill him when he thought he could protect Jesus. This was the same Peter who said he would lay down his life for Jesus in John 13, verse 37. It's the same Peter who said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Son of God. Or you are the Holy One of God. John 6, 68 and 69. Peter had faith. I mean, if they would have had a... a, a a photo book of all the disciples. They were all going around signing. And I mean, Peter probably was the most likely to succeed. He, he had faith, immense faith. And yet, look at what happens here. Now flip over to verse 25. Because Peter's story forms bookends to what we'll look at in a moment with what Jesus is going through. Let me read 25 to 27. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked him, You aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Again, he's asked by a servant. Not a soldier. Not the Sanhedrin. Not a Roman official. And again, he denies being a disciple. To deny being someone's disciple is a very profound thing. Because to be a disciple, you gave up your way of life to follow the rabbi. 
You were saying my life and the way I was going isn't important. It's not what I want. I want to follow this rabbi, learn everything the rabbi teaches. I believe what he believes and I will learn it and follow it and do as he does. So to say, he doesn't even know this rabbi, this Jesus, is to give up everything that he's been following for the past several years. It was to deny the most important thing in Peter's life. And look at the way that people asked him. You aren't one of this man's disciples too. This clearly isn't a friendly question. This isn't just, hey, are you with him? This is clearly expecting, hey, you better say no or we're going to either think poorly of you or hurt you or turn you in or something bad is going to happen. This is a loaded question. This is peer pressure. Here Peter is in a perilous situation. He has an opportunity to say, yes, that's my Savior. But instead he says, no, I don't even know him. And then 26 to 27, someone who was the man's ear off says, hey, I, I remember seeing you. Weren't you there? I remember dark, moonlight, lamps, but still dim, difficult to see. Hey, weren't you that one? There's a lot of confusion going on and Peter tries to hide in the confusion. No. He denies it again. Jesus knew this would happen. Look at John 13, verses 36 to 38. John chapter 13, 36 through 38. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow. Now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. John records in chapter 18, verse 27, again, Peter denied it, knowing Jesus, and at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Peter navigated treacherous waters poorly. He was afraid. He was trying to protect himself. He was trying to manage the situation using his own control, his own abilities. He thought, I assume, that he had no other choice. Ultimately, he failed to grasp the plan and the power of Jesus Christ. And so now with that really disappointing picture in mind, we need to look to Jesus. and What it looks like to stay on course. How does Jesus navigate these waters? Look at verses 19 through 24. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews came together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials near officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. On the surface, I think it's easy to read this passage 
and feel like Jesus is ducking their questions. That he's avoiding them. He's trying to not answer them. And I want to help you today to see that that's the exact opposite of what he's doing. He is navigating these waters brilliantly, which is not surprising because he's the Son of God. There are two main questions that they ask him. Tell us about your teachings and your disciples. Their whole point here is not to determine the guilt or innocence of Jesus. They have already determined that. In their their minds, he's guilty and they just want to be done with him. But they want to stop the spread of what they believe are dangerous ideas. They want to squash his teachings and stop his disciples. And it's interesting throughout this, the question of disciples, other than one mention with witnesses, really isn't brought up again. Because Jesus has already determined he will protect his own. So most of it focuses on his teaching. Now it's interesting that they ask him this question. They want him to explain his own teaching and to tell them about his disciples. And here's where we have to understand how the Jewish law works. It was the accused job to bring witnesses to say what the person had done wrong. The person didn't have to stand up in front of the judge and say what they had done. That was the role of the witnesses. The court should have had witnesses to stand up and say, I saw what this man did. I heard what he did. In fact, under Jewish law, I think this is the same way for us today, Jesus didn't have to answer them at all. He didn't have to witness against or for himself. He didn't have to testify at all. It was their job to bring enough witnesses forward to decide the matter. They should have had some people that heard what they thought were these horrible teachings there to say, I heard Jesus say this. They also were required by law to bring in some of his followers for them to say, I've always heard Jesus say this. They did neither. Legally, he doesn't even have to answer. Ultimately, the irony that's going on here is the ones that are testifying are the ones that are putting him on trial. It's the Sanhedrin. It's the Jewish officials that are lobbing accusations at at Jesus and putting him on trial. They are functioning as the witnesses, and they should not have been doing that. Interestingly, there were no oaths in a Jewish court because one of the Ten Commandments forbade lying. In fact, they took this so seriously that if it was a capital trial, again, which could result in the accused being put to death, if it was found that a witness bore false testimony, the witness would be put to death. So that's the situation that this court should have been adhering to. These are the rules. And look at how Jesus responds. Verse 20. I have spoken openly to the world. Jesus replied, I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. He is not avoiding the question. He is calling them out for their hypocrisy. That's what's going on here. He's saying, you guys are breaking the law. There are plenty of witnesses that you could talk to and bring in here 
and you didn't get them. Not only that, he's saying, I have always spoken openly. You're asking me about my teachings and my disciples as if we're some private, secret, hidden group of people. He's like, I've always been out in public. You've heard everything I've taught. And the, the unsaid thing is, and here you are in the dead of night in a private home conducting an illegal investigation secretly. He said, I've always followed the law. That's what he's pointing out to them. I've always followed the law. And you can check that. But that's not what they want. Verse 22, an official slaps Jesus. Because he can't believe how he's talking to the high priest who kind of is and kind of isn't the high priest both at the same time. Notice the irony. I've loved this about the Gospel of John. I just think he puts these ironic things in over and over again. Who is Jesus Christ? He's the Son of God, creator of the world, God most high incarnate among them. He's the Messiah. And he gets slapped for telling the high priest he should adhere to the law of God. They have no idea who they're dealing with. And again, look at how he responds here in verse 23. He says, If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. Do you hear the refrain again? You need to bear witness to what I've done wrong. You have no right to punish me without bringing witnesses. Testify as to what I did that was wrong. But if I spoke the truth, if I gave proper testimony, witness, you have no right to strike me. Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Jesus is holding them to their own proper standard. And he's pointing out their inconsistencies. He refuses to get sucked into their illegitimate and unjust arguments. He doesn't deny who he is. Never. And he calls on them to get witnesses to do this properly because he knows they can't. But there's one more very surprising aspect of the way Jesus navigates these waters. He doesn't stop it. He has every reason and every potential ability in the world to bring a halt to these proceedings. He could have used earthly methods of trying to reach out to proper authorities to bring an end, but he didn't do that. Even more than that, he could have used supernatural methods that he used on multiple occasions to keep himself from being arrested or to change a situation, to redirect heaven and earth, to bend to his will. He didn't do that. Why? Because an essential aspect of navigating perilous waters is to focus on the greater mission of the glory of God. His goal in this moment was not to win a court case. It was to save you. And to save me from our sins. That's where his focus was. We live in a perilous situation. Trusting Jesus and being a witness in this world is hard. Sometimes the rocks that we will face in this world are a direct result of believing in Jesus Christ. There is a lie that is so prevalent, I believe, among Christians around the world, and it's really taking root here in America as well, that if you believe in Jesus, he removes all the rocks. 
man, did they read the end of the Gospels. Sometimes the rocks that we face are a direct result of our faith. It's easier to go with the flow. Peter did it. He gave in. He navigated the waters by just going along with it. And that didn't work out so well for him. We need to navigate perilous waters by being a witness for Jesus. This world needs witnesses to say, that's Jesus, the Savior of the world. He saved me and he can save you too. We need to proclaim, not deny our faith. The gospel must be proclaimed. We need to stand up and say, I'm with Jesus. Come what may. And let me tell you about him. Because while you think you've got me on the rocks, I am saved and secure eternally, and you can be too. Let me tell you about Jesus. We know what happened to Peter. And I want you to just hear the rest of that story. We'll cover it in a a couple weeks. This was not the end of Peter. He might have denied Jesus, but Jesus doesn't deny him. And Jesus restores him. God had a plan for Peter. But part of me has to wonder, what did Peter miss out on in this moment? How could he have been used by God in this moment if he would have said, yes, I know Jesus? We don't get to hear that story. We'll never know, because that's not what he did. We need to be a witness for Jesus. We also need to call others to be a witness. We need to give them something to witness. Jesus was able to say, there are many people who heard me teach. Many people who saw what I did. I wonder in our lives, could we say the same? There are many people that you could talk to that could tell you about my relationship with Jesus Christ. Could we say that? Have we demonstrated our faith in our lives? So that then we could call on others to bear witness. So we could look at them and say, you've seen how I've lived for Jesus. What about you? Because that's what Jesus is doing to these Jewish officials. What do they see when people look at our lives? Our churches. When they hear our words, our messages, our proclamation. When they see our relationships. In order to do this, we must be consistent This is why my heart breaks with just the numerous scandals going on among Christians. We see it in the Catholic Church, and it's awful, but even among what what would be called evangelical churches, again and again and again, all of our lives must be lived for the gospel of Jesus Christ so that they will hear Jesus from our lips and they will see Jesus in our lives That's the way to navigate the waters. But make no mistake, that might not make the waters easier at all. It might actually make them more difficult. When we are in a perilous and rocky situation, we need to hold on to truth. We have a Savior that has navigated these waters. He went to the cross to die in our place. He conquered sin and death and rose from the grave. And he's looking at each one of us in the midst of our situation. And we need to hear him say, I've got this. Listen to me. Hold on to me. Don't be like Peter that let go of the very thing that would have helped him through that moment. 
Charles Spurgeon famously said, I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me up against the rock of ages. That's faith. How do we navigate perilous waters? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need you. I think Peter is a a, a tough example, but a good and helpful example of what it looks like when we depend upon ourselves. And I don't want to just sit here in, in judgment of Peter because I have to wonder, what would I have done? It's easy on the banks of a river to say, I would have done this. I would have taken that turn. I would have done it right. But Father, in the midst of the situation, whatever it is, if our first and strongest response is not to cling to your Son, Jesus Christ, then it is a sure thing that we will struggle just as much, if not more, than Peter did. I thank you for your Son's strength. He knew the outcome of that court case, and yet he still held on to truth and justice, And was still willing, even through the injustice of it all, to go to the cross for us. To pay the price for our sins. May we cling to that truth, come what may. No matter how the the waves and the waters of this culture and, and this moment in history twist and turn, may we say, I'm with Jesus. And reach out to others with the gospel that they might say the same. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.